If you would, please take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. Last week, you got a brief rundown of ancient history, and this week it's going to be a little bit more of the same. But, as I told you last week, we can just continue to see how remarkable it is that a prophecy in Scripture, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has the capacity to give an accounting to Daniel through this angel, and then we look back through the historical record, and we see exactly how it shaped out in human history. Uh, It's remarkable in, in some sense, as I said last week, because you see human history just kind of unfold before you several hundred years before it happens. But in some senses, we shouldn't be all that surprised that the God who created the universe from nothing can accurately predict human history. And so we take encouragement and we continue to beat the same drum that we have been beating this entire study of Daniel. The overarching purpose in Daniel is for God to continue to say, life is hard, hard times are coming. I am with you, but you will suffer. Some of you will die. Many of you will die. You will die from famine. You will die from pestilence. You will die from persecution. You will die by sword. But I am king, I am ordering history, and I am moving you to the places where I want you to go. And sometimes as humans, we have a hard time reconciling those truths. Of course, Epicurus, back several uh, few thousand years ago, put it to us, the famous philosopher, either God is not good and he won't help you, or God is not able and he can't help you. Well, what Scripture comes back to us and says, you walk through the crucible precisely because God puts you there for His purposes and for your good and for your growth, and let's not leave this out, and for His glory. And so, beloved of God, we might not always understand that, and there are many times where it's okay to not understand it. In fact, we're never going to understand it all. But may we constantly have hearts that reaffirm again and again the goodness of God. And it's tough. And as I'm telling you that this morning, I'm looking out at faces and I'm looking out at lives and I understand that there is brokenness in each one of us, myself included. But that's the beauty of faith in Christ and in Yahweh. Yes, God is working to mend the brokenness, whether we feel it or not, whether we believe it in this moment or not, it is true. And stories like Daniel, giving us this ancient history, is not just trying to give us a timeline of events. It's trying to say, there's pain and hardship, I am present. There's pain and hardship, I am present. There's pain and hardship, I am present. And that's the beauty of what Daniel is doing for us. So today, this morning, when we look at verses 10 through 19 in chapter 11, it really is more of the same. But it's good because it reminds us of some key truths that we need to imbibe again and again and again and again. So this morning, without further delay, let's turn our attention to the Scripture itself. We are looking at Daniel chapter 11, verses 10 to 19. Beloved of God, this is God's infallible and errant word. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. 
For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the fortress of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who come against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. So ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Please pray with me now. Father, thank you. This word is complex, and it can be confusing at times, but there's a clear message here that you want us to see. And I pray that now, by the power of your Spirit, you would bring that message clearly so that our minds and hearts can be transformed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Not to be outdone by Richard's John Mayer reference a few Sundays ago, this, this week when I was thinking about this text, of course, you see the title of the passage, uh, the title of my sermon on the back, it's Wars and Rumors of Wars, that comes straight from Scripture. Uh, but it reminded me of a song by Pink Floyd, in fact, uh, a song called Dogs of War. And the song is all about war. It's all about violence. It's all about taking, it's all about what humanity does to one another. The beginning line, dogs of war, men of hate. That's how the song opens up. It, it, it captures the human spirit. It captures the human mind. It captures the way that we think about each other. One of the refrain that runs through this, the song is, one world, it's a battleground, one world, and we'll smash it down. And that refrain runs through the song. It's a popular song. And a, a, a lot of times those songs are popular because whether people like the type of music, or I mean, it, it rings a note of familiarity with them. It, sound, it feels familiar. When you read, if you were to read through all the lyrics, which you don't have time to now, you know, it might not be your cup of tea musically, but the lyrics would ring a note of familiarity with you, like, yes, this feels familiar. This feels like what we experience. One world, it's a battleground. One world, and we'll smash it down. And so, as you can see, as you hear just from the refrain, the, it's about violence and war. And, and when we think about violence and war in our lives, it's never really satiated. It never really comes to an end. There's always some other thing that we're going to fight or, or a cold war that's brewing. Humans wage war. That's what we do. That's who we are, sadly. That is why the gospel is so important. That's why we need Christ to come and renew our hearts. But I, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating right here. You may remember that a few months ago that I said there was a study done of about a 3,600 period of years. 3,600 years they did a study, and only 292 of them knew some sort of relative peace. Now, if you're a statistician, that's about 8% of the time. That is humanity. That is how we live. That is how we view things. We, we are trained from our earliest days to see people who disagree with us as enemies. We think in terms of war. We live in terms of war. We draw battle lines. We sit on one side and then lob grenades at the other. 
That's because Satan has done his work well, sin has done its work well, and that just feels so natural to us that we do it. And that's exactly what Jesus and the gospel want to dispel in us. When we think about history, especially what we're reading here, we need to think there's a little phrase that's running through here called the pursuit of power. And when we're going to pursue power, that is going to drive the machine of war. And that may be an ideological war where you're demonizing the other side to make your position sound more correct. They may be a literal war where you're going into battle with people. But in any, in any scenario where we're going to be locked into what we would call a war, it is usually a push for power. And we'll employ violence, violent speech, violent actions to get to where we are. And it's sad. But having said all that, here's the doozy of it. Every last war is subject to the providence of God. God sits over every last action in our world. And so we can go one of two ways with that information. We can take the arrogant position and shake our fist at the sky and say, how could you? Or we can drop to our knees and say, thank you, Yahweh, that my life is before you. Ugly, broken, hard, violent as it is, my life is before you, and you are ultimately in control. This present paragraph, as I said a moment ago, is identical to the previous paragraph, and it is identical to the ones that will follow. We are being told this, I mean, and it's kind of making the point, so you can't get away from it. We're being told war, violence, war, violence, war, violence, and just this thread that runs through it that says God is in control. God is working this to a good end. This is a tale of successive people and successive struggles. And, I mean, we, we think about just the Bible itself. You don't read very far into the Bible before you come across violence, before you come across we even just Genesis 3 is the fall, Genesis 4, you have murder. And then it just gets worse from there. So bad, in fact, that God floods the earth and starts over with Noah and his family. And guess what? It gets bad again because the murder and war and violence are in the heart of man in the heart of humanity. And so, yeah, sin ensured that we would constantly be at odds with one another because sin broke our capacity to relate rightly, both with God and with each other. But that, that's why Paul, you know, Paul, was, Paul dealt with sin in the church. But have you ever noticed he called people caught in adultery to repent? He called people caught into other type of sins to repent. Do you remember what he says about the divisive brother? Put him out. Turn him over to Satan until he repents. Why? Because that type of division and violence and war is so contrary to what the gospel wants to do in us. The gospel is radical in this way. If we were to examine each other's lives in this room, we would come to the conclusion that we are radically different. Some of us will have similar personalities, but our lives, the, the places we're coming from, are so different. Our struggles are different. In some senses the same, but in some senses different. But this thing, this gospel, this message that Christ has taken our sin and given us his righteousness has bound us together. And so that type of war and violence and division should have no place in the, community, in the communion of the saints. And so may we labor to not let issues divide us because we are bound by Christ. And that is a cord that is not broken 
kings raise armies to conquer other kings and their armies only to later be conquered by other kings and there's armies who will also later be conquered by other kings and their armies. It's lather, rinse, and repeat. Lather, rinse, and repeat. It's an endless cycle that just repeats and repeats and repeats and repeats. And this cycle of the rise and fall is part of human history. But you know what we're being told? You remember in Ecclesiastes, one of the messages that runs through it is the futility of life under the sun. Of course, if there is no connection with your creator, your life under the sun is futile, has no meaning, has no value. What Daniel is doing is showing us the futility of life in the human sphere of, yes, oh, Alexander the Great is up and he's on top. Oh, he's dead. Oh, his four generals raise up. Oh, they're on, now it's too, they're dead. Oh, Rome is going to come through and you have the Caesars and all these and they're on top of the world and now they're dead. It's just that that's the cycle. And so when we look at that and we look at the magnitude of brokenness within that cycle, we come to the conclusion that only Yahweh can set it right. And that is why Jesus in the incarnation steps into human history in flesh to do exactly that, to say it doesn't have to be this way. There is a more excellent way. And Daniel here is pushing us further and further along the path of recognizing that the Ancient of Days is sending the Son of Man and He is going to come rectify what is ailing humanity. We're witnessing again this highly accurate prophecy. I told you last week some people view this as history and they look at a later date for Daniel. I do not buy that. I take the early date for Daniel and look at this as purely prophecy that we can now look back through history and see how it was fulfilled. But we're getting this detailed history precisely because I told you Palestine, where Israel is, is right in the middle of it. And she's constantly the anvil that the hammer strikes. And so we're getting this history. Daniel is sharing this history with his brothers and sisters to say, gird up your loins. It's not going to get any easier. So Israel doesn't merely need rescue, though. What does Israel need? The same thing that we still need, which is a fundamental heart change. A fundamental heart change. For violence to cease. Do we, want to heal, do we want to see justice reign in our land? Do we want to see unity? Do we really want to see, you know, brotherly love across different ethnic groups? Well, it only happens when the gospel goes forward because that's the only thing that can take such a diverse group of people and unite them in such a fundamental way that it changes the trajectory of their lives. Clubs can't do it. Fraternities and sororities can't do it. Just social groups are not going to do it. Something has got to deal with the sin in our hearts so that we can humble ourselves and consider the other more honorable than us. And that only happens when the gospel is working. So we're seeing exactly why Jesus needed to come here in Daniel. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I won't first see. It's this, that the wars of men are subject to the providence of God. The wars of men are subject to the providence of God. Now, what we're looking at here is we're looking at what I've kind of already alluded to is this idea that war is still happening. So you're kind of, you're getting a sense of what are we looking at in Daniel 11? Well, it's just the notion of unceasing war, war that just does not stop. I mean, they may have a few years there, uh, times here and times there where they're not in constant skirmish or battle or campaigning, but as a general rule, it's unceasing war. But we need to remember, and I've already said this, that even wars happen under the mighty hand of God, that as one of the overarching themes of Daniel is it's God who raises up and it's God who puts down. 
You know, we could, we could even argue, and I think you can make a pretty good argument from a theological standpoint that God raised Alexander up for a very specific purpose, and that's why he died when he was young. He served his purpose. And you may say, that sounds awfully harsh. Well, when we, we're not totally righteous, we're not totally God, we're not even a little bit God, and so if God has got a plan that seems harsh to us, it makes sense that we might not understand it, but God is good, and he is the king. And so he is ordering human history. When we look here, as we start here in verse 10, we read, His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through. You're getting the, the, the image of water, image of a mighty river overflowing and coming and passing through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Now, don't you love all the personal pronouns in here that give you no indication about who the he and his and they are? Uh, but So we have to read, we have to keep context here. Uh, verse 10, we get this accurate summation of history, and his son shall wage war. That's a great, just a, a great phrase that sums up human history. But let's, okay, who, are, who is the his? His sons here, well, we need to understand the his here, referencing back to verse 9, king of his sons, the king of the north sons are coming against the king of the south. His sons here are uh, the sons, his here is Seleucus II, he's the king of the north. And his sons, historically, were Seleucus III and Antiochus III, who was also called Antiochus the Great. Now, respectively, Seleucus III reigned from about 227 to 223. Antiochus III reigned from about 223 to 187. And so what are we getting? Why, why the historical note here? Well, basically, what verse 10 is designed to do is tell you that the sons repeat the actions of the father. The father was a man of war. He brought war. The sons continue to bring war. They are also men of war. And then they're continuing their father's conflict with the king of the south, pursuing power with violence. But, you know, beloved, when we think about what, what is the fruit of sin, what is sin going to do in our minds and lives and hearts? It's going to push us in directions that are anti-God. So it's going to push us to take, not to give, to bring hurt, not to bring help and healing, to destroy not to build up. And that's exactly what happens. Because sin is going to lead us to power grabs. That's exactly what sin does. Sin leads us to grab for power and to seek violence. And do you know why? Sin is antithetical to the gospel. And how do we know this? Well, we know that Christ came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's what we read in the New Testament. But see, sin says, I come to master and when we come in the power of sin, we come to bring mastery and subjugation over something. We don't come in submission and humble service, because that's what sin does to the human heart. That is why the gospel, when we think about it, is so profound. When we think about Jesus, the best human ever, the most powerful human ever, and he came and he washed feet. He experienced hunger. He bled and wept with his people. He came in humble service to exert his power of salvation. The gospel is truly profound in that way. It's the one message that we have in all the earth that says we grow in power by emptying ourselves, by lowering ourselves, by humbling ourselves, by giving up our rights and our power to Christ. What power we have? We have none, really. We're weak. 
And so the gospel, why is Daniel pushing us towards Jesus? Because that's the message we need. Because power grabs and violence aren't working. And in human history, you may win a, you may win a city-state for a time. You may win a fortress for a time. But what's going to happen? All your worth is right there, and you're going to be dead. And your fortress passes on. And what have you done? But see, with the power of the gospel at work in us, we seek to give, we seek to serve, we seek to love, we seek to lay down our own lives, not take the lives of others. And beloved, that's exactly what Jesus says to do. Well, when we think about the sons of Seleucus II, Seleucus III is just kind of a blip in history. He only lasts for about four years. He was murdered because he was weak. He was a weak king. And he was killed for it. He was weak. His, his kingdom was disorganized. And so Antiochus III, as I told you, Antiochus the Great took over. And he wasn't weak. He was strong. And he was very organized. And he did end up making that kingdom, the kingdom of the north, the Seleucid kingdom, strong during his time. And Antiochus drove the machine of war. We know from history that from about 219 to 218, he ventured far. He ventured all the way across Palestine into Phoenicia and all these different kingdoms to try to take them over and was successful to some degree. But what we're looking at here when we see the passage, I want to keep this tied to the text. He shall, so talking about Antiochus III here, he shall raise a great multitude, which he did, but it, shall be, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Now, there's a lot of he's in there, and we've got to ferret all this out. Antiochus is the king of the north, and he goes to the fortress that's mentioned here. There's a fortress held by Egypt, the king of the south, in Gaza that was a key point. And so he, the Seleucid kingdom, is constantly trying to come after this fortress to get uh, ground that far south so they have a battle station there so they can continue to raid further south. So Antiochus comes again, the king of the south, and in verse 11, the king of the south at this point is Ptolemy IV. Ptolemy IV. He reigned from about 221 to 204 uh, B.C. But he had, Ptolemy IV raised an army and he had a decisive win against Antiochus in that Gaza area and the Palestine area and reduced his numbers, had a decisive victory. We know this from history. And so when we read verses 11 and 12, then the king of the south moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, and it shall be given into his hand. We have it there. And when this multitude is taken away, this is all about the king of the south here, and when the multitude is taken away, when he defeats... His, that is the king of the south, that is Ptolemy IV, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall be cast, and he shall cast down tens of thousands. He'll still have some victory, but he shall not prevail. That's an important conjunction right there. But he shall not prevail. The he there is Ptolemy, the king of the south. I, if, I'm sorry, I'm try, but I'm trying to keep it as clear as I can for you because of all the he's and his's. Now, what do we know from history? When it describes Ptolemy as his heart shall be exalted, we know from history that Ptolemy IV was a nasty, evil, wicked dude. He was perverted. He was a profligate. He was not a good person. And so when the passage in verse 12 makes sense or, or makes the comment his heart shall be exalted, he lived that way. He lived as if he was the end. He was it. And a lot of historians agree that he died from, uh, from diseases 
that were commiserate with his lifestyle, like so many kings did back in this time. When you think about that, though, in the midst of all these power grabs, and you know what it does for us? It reveals the heart of man without God. And when we see it on display here, it becomes so clear to me. What is the heart of man without God? What does it go to if there is no God there? It goes to pride, and it goes to pleasure. Now, even Christians struggle with this. So as a Christian brother or sister this morning who probably struggles with one or both of those, imagine if there was no reigning influence in your heart and you were just given full vent to those things. I can remember when I lived that way. What Solomon says, I denied my eyes nothing that I saw. That's exactly what humans do. We're going to go toward pride and pleasure if there is no reigning influence in God. What what do the Scriptures tell us? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And when the fool says in his heart that there is no God, we're going to replace that with something, and it's going to be me. It's going to be you in your own heart. Idolatry says pursue pleasure. That is best. Avoid pain. There's nothing to learn in pain. And things haven't changed. That is the human spirit. That is the human psyche. That's the way humans live their lives. And so when we're looking at all these power grabs, all these changing and going for fortresses and and living, you know, these wicked lifestyles, what it reminds us and what the text is saying, as I've already said, is we need a Savior. We need something to save us, not from the Seleucid dynasty, not from the Ptolemaic dynasty. We need something to save us from us because it's me and my heart that compels me to do the things that these wicked people are doing. So what does this text scream to us? Come, Lord Jesus, come. We need Jesus. This morning, you need Jesus. I need Jesus. When we look at this, just kind of read it again. For the king of the north, uh, verse 13, for the king of the north shall raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come out with a great army and abundant supplies. And I'll stop right there. And I want to go back and read verse 12 again. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted. He shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. What are we looking at here, all this death? I firmly believe we are seeing God's judgment throughout human history. Why? Because sin is serious, and we don't need a bigger reason than that. Because sin is serious. Kings come and kings go. Why? Because God judges the nations over sin. Why is death in the world at all? Because of sin. Why did Adam and Eve feel that intense separation from God? Because of sin. Why are we born in a condition where we are separate from God and we need His work in our hearts to restore it? Because we are born in sin. Beloved, when we read this and we think, well, God is harsh, just letting all this death or ordaining all this death. No, it's because we've been conditioned to think that sin isn't that serious. Do you know where we stray when we get off track with our thinking about Jesus, the Bible, and theology in general? It's when we take sin and we minimize it, we make it smaller so that it's not that big a deal. It's just this little trifle of a thing that I can deal with, and that's not the way Scripture speaks about it. Scripture labels sin something of pure, wretched, heinousness that needs a divine response. 
13, 13 and 14. I'll read, read 13. For the king of the north shall raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. And in those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the vine among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Now, verse 13, after some years, we know after the last battle between Ptolemy and Antiochus, it was about 15 years before Antiochus, with a bigger army, decides to invade again. He invades in the area of Phoenicia and Syria. Now, Ptolemy IV had died in 203 from his lifestyle. At this time, when, when Antiochus invades, Ptolemy V is on the throne, and he's very young. And Antiochus is being strategic here. You know what? He's, why he's invading now? He's got a young king who's weak. He's going to weaken him further so he can take over the kingdom. What do we say? The heart of man is violence and power grabs. And that's exactly what he's doing. And in, two, in, in, in 201 B.C., Antiochus finally captures the fortress in Gaza, two years after Ptolemy V takes the reign. And you know what's interesting? Is each of these kings who come and go, each of these kings who come and go, they think they've got their crown jewel. And it's, it's fascinating to me that they think they've got their crown jewel and they're not appreciating, you're going to die too. As I said to you last Sunday, every soul in this room is going to die, every one of us, or either Jesus is going to come back and we're going to be taken up into the air with him. We need to keep, we need to have a solid theology of death and remember that our lives are not living to just stay, we are not living our lives to just stay alive. We're not living our lives to just get all the power that we can. We are living for Christ. Richard read it, our days are ordained by him before any one of them came to pass. They're his days that he has given us as stewards. And beloved, may we keep this and take it to heart. The sons of violence mentioned in verse 14 is interesting because we talk about how this is eventually going to affect Israel. And in those, in those times, many shall rise against the king of the south and the violent, it actually literally says in the Hebrew, the sons of violence among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Israel gets involved. And I want to tell you a little bit of history here. Well, I mean, I've been telling you history the whole time, but there's a little bit more. The kingdom of the south, the Ptolemaic kingdom at this point, had pretty, pretty solid control over where Israel was in the Palestine area. They were groaning under the Egyptian control. Now, now you kind of think back all the way. Israel and Egypt have a history. They're groaning under Egyptian control, and you know who they want? They want the Seleucid kingdom. We want to live for Antiochus. He's got the power. He's organized. He's going to be our savior. He's going to make life better. And so they get into the war. Well, the passage tells us here in verse 14, but they shall fail at the very end of it. It doesn't go well for them at first. But can we appreciate the irony here? Antiochus III, the great, he's going to be our savior. Who comes after Antiochus III? Antiochus IV, who brutalized Israel for a decade, who made life for them so hard. He was such a persecutor of Israel, they groaned under it. It's because the human mind thinks if the right person in power can come and save me, I'll be saved. And history says, no, that's not going to happen. Our only Savior is Jesus. Our only hope is Jesus. Our only help is Jesus. And so, 
it fails. The Egyptian general that put down their little revolt, his name is Scopus, by the way, and for their treachery, as he called it, he attacked Jerusalem and Judea and killed many of their elders and leaders as punishment to say, you don't rebel against this kingdom. As I said, Israel said, well, the right leader will solve our problem. Surely the right leader will solve our problem. And it doesn't. Israel would groan and groan and groan until the glorious event that John 1 and in Matthew and in Luke that we read about of the coming of Christ where finally the answer would come that only God's grace conquers. We think about worldly problems, beloved. We're so quick to apply worldly solutions to the problem. We think, I'm a pragmatist by nature. It's a big struggle for me sometimes. I'm just, I'm a pragmatist. This should work. It doesn't work that way. Not always. So often we want to come at the world's problems with worldly solutions rather than submitting it to the Lord and saying, there is no, I, can, I can't fix this. Or, Father, if I do try, I'm going to mess it up. I need your wisdom. I need your spirit to do this. And we see this played out in history. The text continues, Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the fortress of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against them shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So the king of the north, Antiochus III, he fights against Scopus, the Egyptian general who has got the forces of the south. In 198 B.C., in the Battle of Paneum, Antiochus comes against Scopus and has a massive, decisive victory. In fact, it says that and the, force, the forces of the south, south shall not stand. His best troops, read, shall not stand. And there shall be no strength to stand. In other words, he obliterates them in 198 B.C. And then we are told in verse 16, he shall do as he wills and none will stand before him. Now, you've read this before in Daniel. You have. We've read it about Alexander the Great. In Daniel 8, same thing says about Alexander the Great. None shall stand before him and he will do as he wills. Beloved, it's always for a season. None will stand before him. He'll do as he wills, and he will die. The glorious land mentioned here is Israel and Pal the Palestinian area, Israel, Israel. That he will come and stand, that is Antiochus, in the glorious land. And look at how the author describes it. With what in his hand? Destruction. Oh, no, he's not coming to liberate. liberate. He's not coming to save. He is coming just like everybody else who comes to destroy. Incidentally, in 63 BC, a Roman general by the name of Pompey would march into the Palestinian area and take it for Rome fully and finally. So Israel has some years yet to go in tyranny and then years after that. When we think about destruction being in his hand, it reminded me of something. The people wanted Antiochus III because, right, he's going to save us. It reminds me of another place in biblical history, 1 Samuel, where the people said, we want Saul. We want Saul to be king. He looks like a king. He's, he's stately. He's noble. He's going to save and help us. And it was a failure. It was a debacle. 
people wanted Antiochus, but he had destruction in his hand. The people wanted Saul, but he had destruction in his hand. Beloved, this is telling us we need the Lord, not a man. Because you see, the human mind and heart says, power will save us. Power will save us. If the right person gets in power, that will save us. But you know what power leads to almost 100% of the time? Tyranny. Tyranny. The more power, because the human heart, as they say in the Lord of the Rings, is easily seduced by power. And when we get there, we don't easily let it go. And so often we don't use power to serve we use power to be served and to tyrannize. All you have to do is read history. It is there again and again and again and again. After this decisive victory, so verses 17, 18, 19 kind of bring up the end of this paragraph. He'll, shed, he'll set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. I'm going to stop right there. So we know that when Antiochus beat Egypt, beat them in battle, he did bring a treaty, and he forced Egypt to sign it. He forced the Ptolemaic kingdom to sign a treaty that was very advantageous to him. And then we get this again. He shall give him a daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Antiochus, in fact, had a daughter named Cleopatra, not the famous one who would come from the Ptolemaic line, but Antiochus III had a daughter named Cleopatra whom he gifted to uh, Ptolemy V, this is your bride, you're going to marry her, y'all are going to have a son. And what he wanted her to do was in coup with him, set her son up as king by having Ptolemy V removed either by intrigue or murder, whatever they could devise. Well, so sends the wife over, she marries Ptolemy V and decides, I'm going to support my husband dad, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to be a part of your plan. And so you get this beautiful detail in Scripture. It tells you that, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Why? Because she scraps it. She doesn't follow this plan. And this is historically verified. This is all from history. 18 and 19 our summation. After he shall, afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress, fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. This sums up a lot of history, actually. Verse 17 does as well. So basically, here's the sum of Antiochus III. He went around Asia Minor and coastal Greece, and he won lots of towns. He won lots of battles. He defeated lots of people. He was relatively successful in that, if that's what we want to call success. But in about 188 B.C., he had to face a Roman army. A burgeoning empire was taking place, and he had to face a Roman army, which he outnumbered and should have won. But we know the history. We know that Roman, the Roman armies were supremely disciplined, and so with smaller forces, they mopped the floor with the Seleucid army. And in that battle, Rome imposed a heavy, heavy tribute onto Antiochus III. He had to pay, send lots of money to Rome. He had to give hostages, one of whom was Antiochus IV, and he had to give up some land. So Rome was already making inroads at this point. What do we remember? He was great. He was the bad boy on the block. And he got whipped just like everybody does. It says he, he falls 
Antiochus III died pretty unceremoniously, desperate for money because of such heavy tribute to Rome. You know what he resorted to? He did what the Norsemen used to do. He just started pillaging temples, holy places, because he knew expensive relics would be in there. And in one such pillage, he was pillaging, he was leading his army, and he got killed. The man of violence died a violent death doing what he did. Beloved, he got in the end exactly what his life merited. It's sad, it's depressing, and it is remarkable that we can read these verses in Daniel and point right back to just a timeline in history of how things unfolded. But we're, we're not here just for a historical lesson. We're here to be reminded that even in war, God's purposes are worked out. This is not just mindless, senseless history the purposes of God are being worked out. War is violent. In fact, some of you are familiar with this quote that William Tecumseh Sherman, Union General from the Civil War, what did he say about war? Simple phrase, three words, war is hell because of what it does to the human mind because of what it does to the human body. When we think about the psychological ramifications of war and the PTSD and the maiming and the death, it is awful. So how could God use and ordain such a thing for our good and his glory? Isn't that the million-dollar question? And my answer is, I don't know. But he does. We can't know the ultimate answer to that question, but there are some things, beloved, that we can know and that I want to remind you of this morning. We can know that God is sovereign and that even in evil, He is working in and for our good. We can know that God is love and even in hardship, He is loving us with an everlasting love that will not let us go. We just sang about it. We can know that God is truth and even in a world of lies, we can be objectively grounded. Life is difficult and war-filled, but we can know that Jesus is with us always, even to the end of the age. And that, my friends, is good news. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning and the power of it that you reach so deeply into the heart of man to expose Father, thank you for your renewing love. I pray for every soul here this morning that we would all be renewed, that we would all be transformed, and that we would all continue to dig deeply into your grace. God, for there is life. Father, thank you. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your sincere and ongoing compassion. God, and thank you that this world is not left to chance, that you are ruling and reigning. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.